Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. All right, welcome to another episode of the TC Live podcast on the Tennis Podcast Network. We're now into March, the 2021 season, just moving right along. A lot of tournaments all around the globe. And my guest this week making his TC Live podcast debut, a former British number two who coached several of the best players in the world, including Pam Shriver, Mary Jo Fernandez, and Tim Henman, before getting into broadcasting and becoming a mainstay on the tennis airwaves for now over 20 years. Hard to believe. It's Jason Goodall. Jason, thanks for joining the show. Glad to have you here. Oh, delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. I think I speak for a lot of people at this network in particular and tennis fans in general that have definitely heard a lot of your work. And sometimes it's like, I don't know exactly where, I don't know what tournament, but you've been working so many events for so many years, the Masters events, just me working in this building in this company for a couple of years, hearing you on the exhibitions, the IPTL events, and of course, uh, all the big uh, majors as well. It's nice to have you here, and uh, I'm curious what you've thought about the new digs and the uh, the setup here at Tennis Channel. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's, uh, it's almost like a rites of passage as far as I'm concerned. You know, when I used to start broadcasting the world feed, you know, we'd often mm-hmm. hear that we were going out live on the Tennis Channel and all of the other networks around the world, but it always used to give us a little bit of a lift when we knew they were going out uh, on the Tennis Channel. And uh, to be finally here and to, to see what kind of team guys have put together and to see, you know, the fantastic facilities here and just to be across so many events in one week. It's so different for me. Normally I'm very much, you know, down the mine shaft or one of the events you're concentrating on all of the matches that week. Whereas here it's been great. It's been across all four and uh, it gives you some nice variation. That's, you know, you're jumping right into the mix. It's a a typical non-quote-unquote big week for Tennis Channel. It's four tournaments all over the globe, different surfaces. I am curious, though, about, you know, your getting into broadcasting as a former player and someone that got into coaching what drew you into broadcasting and specifically play-by-play because a lot of players don't really go that route it's, it's a really interesting question because I think you know when you're a, a kid and you you want to be a professional sportsman or woman you know you dream of doing just that and you don't really think about what else you might do and what right. else there is out there you know so it's always something that you have to come to terms with when you retire you know and I had to retired fairly young. I had a, a bad arm injury when I was sort of 20, 21, and I was a fairly decent junior. So I always thought that I would continue down that path. And I always, you know, dreamt of doing that. So suddenly it was like a little bit of a shock, you know, and then I think naturally, if you are somewhat analytical, you might think about going into coaching, which is something that always interested me. And that's something that I, I did, but that was a, at a fairly early age. Yeah. So I started hitting a little bit on the women's tour and I started coaching a little bit there as well. And I always enjoyed that, but it was, um, it wasn't as fulfilling as uh, as playing, and you know there are a lot of different aspects that go into being a great tennis coach, and it's all about relationships, and you know it's it's very transient. You know you can be coaching one player one week and lose your job the next week yeah. after a bad <laughs> result. You know and you, it's very hard to kind of look uh, to the future and understand where you're going to be in two, three, five years time, unless you work for a federation. I did a little bit of that as well, but it, again, ultimately unfulfilling. So. 
you know, when you're watching tennis on TV, you're always thinking like, I wonder what I'd be like as a commentator. I mm -hmm. wonder if I could do that. You know, and it kind of sounds pretty easy. So you think, yeah, you know, I'll, yeah. Be, I'll be okay at that. But you never really know. And then um, I was working with my brother, Lee, who's also a, a commentator um, within the industry. And we started building player websites. So we did Tim Hemmons player website. We were oh, putting nice. in, yeah, because back in the day, that was what players did to try and communicate with fans rather than now. Of course, it's a little more instantaneous with Twitter and Insta and all of that kind of stuff. But so we did Tim's official website. We were looking at doing Maria Sharapova's, Leighton Hewitt. So we were putting in bids with, with a few players. Um, and then all of a sudden, I just got a call from uh, a gentleman who worked at ATP Media. And uh, he said, hey, it was a Sunday afternoon. I'll never forget it. And he said, um, you know, we're due to go on air Monday morning, 10 o'clock. We're a commentator down. Uh, do you fancy it? And so I said, well, I've never done anything. Short like, notice, right? not even I, a day to think about and it. And it. It, didn't, it, it got even worse because he said, well, we can't afford to fly you over there. We can't afford to pay you anything. <laughs> but like, if you want to come over, if wow. you want to give it a go, then we can. So I said, sure, let's do it. So I, I got an easy jet flight, cost me about 50 quid. Popped over there, um, and I'll never forget, I pitched up in the morning, there was this big TV truck, and I, I, shaking hands with everybody, meeting them for the first time, and he said, you'll be commentating with John Barrett, who is the voice of Wimbledon, yeah. you know, it's oh, somebody yeah. I'd grown up with, and listened to him and Dan Maskell, you know, calling all the big matches at Wimbledon, and, uh, but I'd never met him, and I didn't know him, and they said, oh, you just go up in a commentary booth, you can sit with John all day, just kind of soak it up, you know, and, yeah. and, and see what you think, and then tomorrow, if you feel comfortable, you know, we can maybe call, and I said, that sounds great. So I go up to the booth and then John's in there and I introduce myself, you know, it's like five to the top of the hour. And he said, great, yeah, put your cans on. And I was like, what are cans? You know, it's a headset. <laughs> okay, yeah, great. So I got my headset on, you know, and there's a, so he said, yeah, um, you know, just, you'll be fine. And I said, okay, well, you know, I've never done anything before. And he's like, okay, you'll be all okay. So anyway, they come on air and he said, you know, welcome day one in Hamburg, you know, uh, Masters 1000 it was back in the day. And uh, he said, uh, John Barrett alongside Jason Grohl. And he just reached over and he turned on my microphone. And, and I was like, <laughs> oh, oh no, it's, it's not how it's supposed to work. I'm not supposed to, I've never done. So, you know, what do you think? Yeah, I was like, what? So I kind of rambled on for like five minutes through the knock-up of the first match of the day. And then he leant over and he turned the microphone off and he goes, that's the best way. You can either do it or you can't, you know, no, yeah. good, no good thinking too deeply about right. it. And it was great. And so that was like a long time ago. I think it was 2001. And I really enjoyed it. We did a lot of, tennis in those days on the world feed, which I think in terms of learning your craft is so good. You know, it's a little bit like the Beatles in Hamburg where they're doing gig after gig after gig after gig. Yeah, never, never ends. <laughs> no, and then, but suddenly you start to learn. And I was so fortunate to be sat beside John, who was, you know, very kind of classically trained as a broadcaster. And he was so helpful, so generous with his time. And uh, so, you know, I've got a lot to thank him for. And of course, uh, the people at ATB Media for giving me that chance to start. It is true that you don't have time to get nervous. You just go right mm -hmm. on. You have to react in the moment. It's good to not be in your own head there. Uh, your specific style, you, you've mentioned it before. You love to kind of mix in analytics. But I also think it's important to kind of have, in your case, that player's perspective that separates you. Did, uh, did that planning of how you were going to sound, you know, after years of experience, did you kind of hone that or was that just natural and organic? Yeah, I think for me, I've always been very analytical. So, you know, when I was a player, because I wasn't supremely talented, you know, far from it, you know, I always had to try and think through how I could win matches, yeah. beat better players. Uh, and the same in terms of my coaching, I would, I would always very much look at uh, opponents for the players that I was, was playing, how we could break down their games rather than focus solely on what's happening on their side of the net or when I played on my side of the net. So I think it was fairly natural for me when I started and I did start in the analyst role with John and I knew a lot of the players because I was just sort of fresh off the tour. But I, 
I thought I could bring a slightly different angle to it by obviously not being one of the best players in the world. You know, it's great to have the likes of Lindsay and Jim here, you know, with us this week yeah. as former world number ones and Grand Slam champions. But, you know, a lot of the stories like we're seeing in Buenos Aires this week is about players ranked 300 in the world coming through the qualifying, winning their first match in the main draw of an ATP mm. event. And, you know, so it's a very different side to pro tennis. So I tried to bring that into my commentary as well. But then I think sort of looking a little more long term, there are always going to be so many great players stepping off the tour that want to step into broadcasting and then can add such value in terms of what it's like to play the players that we're commentating on. I'm never going to be in that position. I was never you know, a, a great player, never a Grand Slam champion, far from it. So it was always kind of natural for me to want to then slip into the play-by-play, but still thinking that my strength might be trying to get the most out of the analyst because I understood the game and I understood the analytics behind it. And I always feel my job is to try and give, you know, the viewer or the listener at home almost a free tennis lesson. You know, can I get from my analyst something that, you know, fans at home can learn from? That's very forward and long-term thinking that there's just going to be a continuously deep bench of former players. Some are, you know, former world number ones, top 10 guys that, you could stand out more as a play-by-play guy with your perspective. That's interesting. I don't think many people have that approach or have taken that approach, but uh, it's clearly worked for uh, two decades in the game. I do want to talk about Australia before we get to this week's uh, events on Haven't tour. recovered yet. It, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was eventful, and it was eventful for a lot of reasons. We were talking before we started that we were both on the same like awkward sleep schedule. You recall matches on the East Coast here in America and – we were out on the West Coast, the the overnights, and some of the matches you ended up doing, the late night matches, ended up being so drama filled and eventful. Sitsipas, Nadal, even Djokovic, Fritz, which looked like yeah. he was going one way, and then the injury and the fans let out and all that makes me think. Uh, as a good question to ask you, you go into a match with all this preparation, knowing the game, having some storylines lined up, but you have to be able to adapt, adjust on the fly, and really capture the moment. I think those two matches really highlighted what broadcasting tennis and the greatness of a best of five match is all about. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's uh, what really good play-by-play commentators can do. And I'm not suggesting I'm one of those, far from it. But when I'm always watching a sport that I don't know a great deal about, when I watch the NFL, for instance, or the NBA, I'm always thinking, you know, can I? am I learning from what I'm hearing about the game that I don't know a great deal about, as well as obviously um, what I do know about the game. But I think you're right. In terms of being able to prep for a match, you know, I'm one of those that does do a lot of preparation, but you you can't then be constrained by that and think that this is where I'm going no matter what happens on the court. It's all about looking out of the window if you're yeah. courtside in the booth and understanding what's unfolding before your eyes. And then the key is to get the perspective of the analyst. So I'm just there really just to kind of roadmap the match. But as long as we're doing that well, and we're understanding what we're watching, is there any historical context to what we're seeing? That's important. So therefore, you know, we've got to make yeah. sure that we try and signpost that to the fans. But the key is to step back a little bit and allow the analyst to explain what we're seeing and why we're seeing it. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's key to get that balance right. You have to... Do your prep in case something happens within the match and, th- and then you've got to kind of know why it's important yeah. and how important it is. But it, it's truly, I think, the most important thing to be able to step back and just let the match unfold. That's what we're there for, to enjoy the match and the players that we're watching, not to bring our personalities too much into the booth. 
Right. You know, I, I think I heard the line. It was, okay, the world number one, Djokovic is in danger. Like, this is a serious thing. Everybody, and it's kind of like everybody pay attention. The same can be said. Nadal, up two sets to love, had only blown that lead once. You guys started to kind of see, all right, this is something, monitor it. So I think it's interesting. And I also, you're probably kind of used to it used to it now, but calling matches remotely without the presence of fans there had to be an adjustment period for you and just for getting a feel of what's happening and, and even in a way capturing the moment. Very difficult and very different. You know, the beauty of being on site is that you can have so many conversations with people that you bump into and coaches and players and friends mm -hmm. and you can build up throughout the tournament so much information there that you can't find on paper you can't find on the internet so suddenly when you're not there it's it's very very difficult even just to get a feel for the speed of the courts you know how, how has that changed throughout right. the week you know how, how are the conditions today how windy is it how cold is it so it's key to have personnel on site even if the whole broadcasting team aren't there that's important uh, and then you've just got to use your contacts even more than you, you uh, have done previously, you know, to just try and get any kind of information. But it was particularly hard in Australia because you had so much happening within the event with the quarantine and all of the issues that that brought up. And then, you know, losing fans midway through the tournament and then having fans back at the, right. at the end. And how did that affect the players and the match that you referenced, you know, Fritz and, and Djokovic, where, you know, they let them force them to leave mid-match, you know, <laughs> and how did that affect the match? And I think it did affect the outcome. I thought, you know, Fritz... Um, uh, had an opportunity and was up in the match, uh, and had they not had that sort of 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, minute it was break, supposed to be five minutes, ended up being 15. Absolutely, because yeah. they wouldn't leave, and we knew that was going to be the mm -hmm. case. And Djokovic had a little bit of additional time to fully recover, and then suddenly played a lot better in that fifth set. So I think that certainly helped him, you know, and then he goes on to win the tournament. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, Jason Goodall here on the TC Live podcast. Let's talk about this week's tennis because it's uh, it's been incredible. I, I want to start with the ladies. The Doha event's always a big one on the calendar, and we've seen some fireworks. We've seen some events, uh, good and bad. The first player I want to reference, she actually did lose today, but Jessica Puglia mm -hmm. has been having maybe arguably the biggest breakthrough that we've seen on the ladies' tour right now. She loses to Kvitova in a, a tight two-set match, but uh, another great week, another great week of wins for her after the Aussie quarterfinal performance. This isn't exactly a spring chicken. I, I use that term loosely, but, you know, mid-20s to have this kind of breakthrough. What have you seen from her, Jason, in Australia and then also in Doha this week that you know, it's kind of given her the path to excel. I think you've got to go back even further. You know, the double in the bubble last year, Western and Southern right. Open and, yeah. and New York for the US Open. I thought she started to play some really good tennis there as well. And you mentioned that she's in her mid-20s, but I think if you look at her body of work, she hasn't been able to play a great deal of tennis, not as much as somebody who would be fully fit and still be 25. So I think, you know, maybe, you know, in terms of all the serious injuries that she's had, she's still trying to, gain ground on all of the others that are in their mid-20s. So a, a very young, inexperienced tennis player for someone who's 25. And then David Witt, I think, has brought an awful lot Huge to the addition. table. Yes, and just before they started in Washington, I think she went on to win that tournament, her first tournament that she was able to win. 
And then that gave them, I think, a, a, an opportunity to solidify their relationship. And he talked in Australia about the fact that, you know, she's becoming now a real student of the game. She's understanding it more greatly than she did before. That's allowing her to think more clearly on the court. She's fitter. She's stronger. And she's just now understands that she belongs to be there. And that's key. You know, that takes you a while. And especially when you have injuries and you can't build up any kind of momentum throughout the season, and that happens season upon season, then it becomes difficult to believe that this, you know, it was meant to be. And this was the, the course on which, you know, you should have, you should have taken. And, and so it, I think it's been difficult for her. But I must say, for somebody who comes from obviously a very wealthy family, you know, her, her parents owning the Bills and a lot of other um, sports teams in that area of the country, it would have been very easy for her to just say, okay, this is too tough. You know, yeah, I've, I've done got, what I need to do. Yeah, yeah, I've got all of these injuries yeah. and, and it's just not for me. I, mm -hmm. There's lots of other things I can pursue here right. and, I, and, I, and I don't need to work. Yet, you speak to anybody and you talk about how hard she works, always the last person to leave the practice court. So always having a great attitude, always having a growth mindset of wanting to become a better player. And I've coached a lot of wealthy kids, you know, and often that's not the case. So it's definitely benefited her because it's allowed her to employ some really good coaches through the years and allowed her to not have to worry about where the next paycheck's coming from. But that doesn't necessarily translate to having a great attitude, working as hard as you can and having success. So that's what I really like to see. And off the back of the Aussie Open, Jen Brady, you know, we saw this week in Doha struggling because suddenly you've done really well. I know Jen did better than Jesse by making her first major final, but then it's hard. You see you that know? with the men too. We've yes. seen this week. A little bit Medvedev, of a come down yeah. in Rotterdam, you know, Medvedev, Zverev losing. Mm -hmm. So it's not easy. Yeah. So I, I really like the fact that uh, Jesse pitched up, played the qualifying, her second round qualifying. She played Potapova there, <laughs> tight match, seven, six in the mm -hmm. third. Potapova, remember, served for the opening set against Serena oh. in Australia. So, you know, tough draw, came through it. Done really well. She looked a little tired today, has to be said. But again, that's another major step in the right direction as far as she's concerned. Doesn't seem like she's going to be playing qualifying for much longer the way she's gone. But no, being believing that you need that you belong there. She got crushed by Serena in that Auckland final, I think a year over a year ago, and now she looks like a completely different player. Coach, as you said, Wit. Um, there's a lot to like about her game. The variety coming to net, short, compact swings. Just looked a little tighter today. Also lost to one heck of a player in Petra Kvitova, who, mm -hmm. oddly enough, is kind of becoming this like forgotten player. I think the depth in the women's game is great. Osaka clearly is the apex right now, but there is a lot of good players. Serena's in that mix. Ash Barty still world number one. Halep, but for for some reason, I feel like Kvitova might be still flying under the radar, which is kind of strange to say. Yeah, no, it's. I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a job as an analyst for you somewhere along <laughs> oh, the line. Oh, maybe I'm not there yet. We'll see, <laughs> but. I think because she doesn't have the consistency, perhaps throughout the year, throughout the season, we see her struggle sometimes with injuries. Sometimes, you know, she she's not at her best when it's really hot, really humid. So it does have some some physical issues, and and so we don't necessarily think of her as being somebody that we're going to back at the start of a major or back at any of these tournaments. We're always wondering, you know, how is she going to fare this week? How are those physical ailments? Are the conditions going to be? good enough for her to play that aggressive style of yeah. tennis that we so love watching. And I thought she dealt with the really windy conditions really well today because sometimes you think, okay, if it's really windy, you'd back someone it's like... crazy out there yeah, today. Yeah, <laughs> but you'd back maybe yeah. Pagula because, you know, she's yeah. the consistent one. She's the solid one. Petra's going to go for the lines more. She's going to play more aggressive tennis, and that's hard to do in very blustery conditions. So I thought she dealt with that really well. And interestingly, I was speaking to Lindsay Damport, who was calling the match earlier, and she said, this is one of the weeks, and she normally has one a year, 
Petra, whereby she doesn't have the coach with her. She just brings her best friend. And therefore, she's kind of relaxed, mm. you know, nice and chilled, no real pressure from the side of the court. So funnily enough, you've got two players in the final with her and Galbini, who don't have their coach courtside, because, of course, Conchita tested positive when she arrived in Doha, and she's watching from uh, quarantine now. So it's an interesting one. I think Petra plays her best tennis when she's nice and relaxed and sometimes does tend to feel that pressure that we put on players. We know she's good enough to win majors. She's done it before, and I, and I think she has a shot of doing it again. You think certain players, and I use Petra as an example, for whatever reason, they just feel more comfortable in certain regions of the country, certain surfaces. It, it seems like she made the final of this tournament last year, lost to Sabalenka. Another player who plays well in certain parts of the country, certain parts of the year. Why do you think that is in this case? Well, I think a lot of it is just down to the conditions. You know, that's number one. So when you're normally playing in Doha, it's yeah. not that windy. The courts are normally medium to fast. You know, that suits Petra's game. And it's a nice place of the world to play in. You know, you get treated very well. Uh, the conditions are fairly stable every day. They have a couple of big events there. So the players are always trying to peak for those tournaments uh, heading to Dubai next week. So yeah, I, I think when you've had success as well at, at an event, you always like going back there. You always feel very comfortable there. And that's why we look at players in their careers that tend to do well at the same tournaments year in, year out. You know, and there's no surprise in that. I was really looking forward to that Garbini, uh, Muguruza, and Azarenka match mm. today. Unfortunately, Azarenka pulls out because of the back injury. So hopefully a speedy, re speedy recovery for her. Muguruza's been on a tear, and there was nobody that gave Osaka a tighter match at Australia by far. Had chances to win that match. For her to bounce back, play like essentially the top five player that she is. This is a real journey back to the top for Garbini, who was kind of at rock bottom for a little bit for her standards. Yeah, I think it was before the start of last season, wasn't it? And ever since she's, she climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, she's been like... <laughs> Changed her life. Right? Yeah. It's just incredible. Great story from the off-season there, doing something completely different, testing yourself, gaining some belief. And then I think she won 15 of the first 20 matches last season, you know, obviously made it through the final of the Aussie Open and suddenly back with Conchita, that's key. I think, you know, they obviously have a great relationship. And when she's playing well, again, she's somebody that has the belief and has the style of tennis, the necessary weaponry to be able to beat the very best players in the world. I love watching her play. And I love the fact that, again, she's somebody who... Would have been easy after Australia, there was missed opportunities against Osaka to kind of got a bit down on herself and, you know, thought about you know, what might have happened, what if, but she didn't. She's bounced back strongly this week and, you know, I'm a big fan of hers. It feels like she doesn't really have any major weaknesses and everyone talks about strengths and how valuable they are, but she can go power with a player like Sabalenka who she beat. She can move out there as well. Uh, I am a big fan of her game as well, and I think the sky's the limit. Uh, Azarenka should be noted. The toughness that she displayed to even get to the semis is pretty incredible. Uh, winning that match against Fidelina, while she, where she was basically breaking down, and, and winning it in straight sets, too, is not something you normally see every day. Well, she's had a, a very interesting season so far because, of course, if you go back a little further, she, having lost to Pagula uh, at the Australian Open, said that she just didn't handle quarantine well enough. She didn't really know what to expect. You know, I think emotionally it's it, it's much more difficult for some players than others. And she said afterwards that, you know, that was just something that she didn't deal with and she wasn't then prepared to be competing in a major. You know, she, she had some physical uh, issues in that match as well, some breathing problems. Um, but I like the fact that then instead of going home and, you know, licking your wounds, then you're saying, right, okay, I'll get a wild card. I'll go and play some more tennis. I need to bounce back strongly. And she did. And I think she was very unlucky. I didn't think there was any chance she was going to finish that match against Svitolina, you know, when she got the injury timeout after a couple of games on her back and it looked like she couldn't move. But it just shows you 
how difficult it is sometimes as an opponent playing against an injured player. Right, it messes with your head a little yes, bit. Yes, you know, she, and she didn't really change her game plan enough. She was still playing, you know, the vast majority of her shots up the middle. We know Azarenka is a great shot maker. You give her time to get set up, even with a bad back, <laughs> she's going to be yeah. able to hurt you. But yeah. I mean, surely Svitolina should have been able to work that out earlier than she did. In the last couple of games in the match, there was a little bit of a wobble from Azarenka and Svitolina had started to work it out. But full marks to her, you know, Azarenka for, for working it out in the end and getting it done and wanting to continue, but we all thought there was very little chance of her being able to pitch up today and play. There's two more players I wanted to mention before we switch to the uh, men's event in Rotterdam. Players that I'm fans of, but just haven't shown the consistency, and we saw it again in this tournament. Sabalenka, Sakari, they've got unbelievable power. They've got a lot of top 10 wins. Sakari has one title, Sabalenka has a couple. But for whatever reason, in bigger tournaments, they haven't put it together in multiple matches. They can prove in that, you know, in Sabalenka's case, especially in the majors, she can beat anybody, but she just can't put it together, hasn't made a quarterfinal. What do you think is missing, if anything, with those two those two games? There has to be something missing because, you know, when they play week in, week out on the tour, we see a higher standard of tennis. Uh, I, let's start with Sabalenka. I think she's the only player ranked inside the world's top 20 at the moment that hasn't made a quarterfinal of a major. Correct. And uh, I think the reason for that is that she wants it more when she pitches up at a major, as all the players do, and her game isn't suited to playing under pressure. You know, she doesn't have any way in which to dial it back. She doesn't have a great base level of play. So she's just going to go for it and yes, bring and, her A game. And, and under it, more yeah, pressure, yeah. that breaks down. Yeah. You know, the, she doesn't have a very reliable second serve. She's still very aggressive on that shot. Starts throwing in doubles. We saw with, in her match with Serena at the Australian Open how there's going to be periods within that match where she's going to redline it and she's going to uh, win a set or two or, you know, uh, three or four games in a row. But when it really matters... The, it's not a fluke that she hasn't been able to perform as well at the majors, and that's solely because she needs to find a way to win when she's not playing her best tennis. The greatest players in the world, all the Grand Slam champions uh, that we know and love, will tell you that they don't play their best tennis on Monday or, or Wednesday or Friday of the first week. They do enough to win. Yeah. If they're pushed, they'll try yeah. and raise the level Just of their game. Just look at Djokovic in Australia. Yeah, perfect, perfect example, yeah. right? But when they need it, tail end of the second week, that's when they're trying to peak and that's when they'll bring it. That's why we love watching those matches at the end of majors between the best players in the world. It's such high quality tennis. But Sabalenka, doesn't matter who she's playing, she'll try and play the same way and it'll it'll be try, 10 out of 10. You know, I call her like the spinal tap of the women's tour because it's up to 11 because it's one louder because that's louder than 10 and it's bigger than 10 and that's what she does. Yeah. And yeah. there's no need for that. She can win at seven, you know, and eight. And that's the difference between a great shot maker and a really good competitor. Competitors win majors, you know, yeah. good shot makers. We love watching every now and then. They'll have a couple of great wins and certainly win tournaments. But to win a major, it takes something very, very different. And then with Zachary, uh, it was interesting. I was commentating with uh, Kamal, uh, Kamal Murray yesterday, and uh, he was saying the problem with her is the second serve. She doesn't have great technique on it, and it's going to fall apart. And this was before the match started. You know, three doubles in the first three service games and never really recovered. Didn't have a high enough first serve percentage rate. And uh, Muguruza jumping all over the second serves, you know, as we know she loves to do. So you have to address that because against the very best players in the world, they're going to understand that's your weakness. They're going to put pressure on you. There's no worse feeling as a player than knowing that you're going to struggle in every single service game. And if you miss your first serve, you know, you might yeah. serve a double or it's going to roll in the middle of the box and then you're going to be defending for the rest of the rally. So uh, the two are s sort of slightly different. 
But with uh, Sakari, she's made great strides in the last couple of years. Tremendously strong athlete, and, and I love watching her play. Great shot making. She's had some big wins, you know, beat the likes of Coco and Serena at the Western and Southern last year. But for her to take it to the next level, she has to address that problem on serve. That was a great Spinal Tap reference. Savalenka <laughs> just having trouble reaching the stage, it looks like. She's <laughs> lost in the back. Uh, no, I agree. Both those players can redline, and in Sakari's case, that first strike tennis when the first serve's in is great, but... Yeah, that second serve is a good point. Uh, more with Jason Goodall here on the TC Live podcast. Rotterdam is where the men are. And we saw something interesting. We saw two players with some stakes at hand. Medvedev and Zverev. Medvedev specifically could have been number two in the world with a good result this week. They both go one and done and they're out. And we talked about Pagula on one hand being able to just dig in after going far, but not all the way at a major and, and play good tennis I wonder, Jason, if this is the pressure getting to them, if it's the grind of the tennis tour, or if it's just not getting your energy level up for a non-major. Well, I think it's so difficult, and especially when you consider the difference in the two events. You know, in Australia, it was wonderful. We did have fans in there, and then we had that four-day break in the middle. Then we had fans there at the end. So, you know, players were able to feed off that energy that they were able to create, and it was so wonderful to be commentating on matches where we did have somewhat of an atmosphere, and especially those matches that involved Nick Kyrgios initially. And then I think for, for Medvedev specifically, we'll start with him. I think he would have been so disappointed. A lot of people were thinking that he could have beaten Djokovic in the final there. And, you know, I think he would have thought he had a very good shot as well. And he's, of course, come close before, runner-up at the US Open. And people expected a lot from him. And, and he was done and dusted. You know, very, very one-sided match yeah. in the final there. And I think that takes a lot to come back from. You know, you, you start questioning, you know, what, what happened there? Am I ready yet to break through? And I think when everybody pitched up in Rotterdam, there are no fans there. It's a, it's a cavernous arena. It's a big exhibition center. And it's a very, very different scenario. The, the court was deathly slow initially in the first couple of days, starting to speed up now towards the end of the week. But I think very, very difficult conditions to bounce back from. And perhaps, you know, a week or two too soon for Medvedev. He did have plenty to play for, but he just wasn't ready emotionally, you know, and he pretty much tapped out of that first round match midway through it. And for Zverev, I think you've got somebody that has been knocking on the door, you know, runner-up at the US Open last year. And uh, again, in Australia, people were suggesting he's in the mix. He's one of these guys that, you know, can break the domination of the big three. And uh, he wasn't able to do as well as he would have wanted again. And uh, for him too, he probably likes it when it's slightly quicker. And it was a, a very, very slow court. But I think just a struggle off the back of a major. You talk to the best players in the world, they'll be looking to peak for those events. It was a long trip in Australia with a quarantine. Been there for a long time. Suddenly you're back in a very different environment in the middle of Europe. They do have a lockdown in, in uh, Rotterdam at the moment because of the virus. So, you know, just, just a tough yeah. ask to go from Australia uh, to Europe. And just want to add as well, these 500-level events are a lot stronger. A lot of players want to play. I mean, these weren't embarrassing losses. Lajovic is a top 30 guy. Bublik's on the rise. So it's tough. It's tough to kind of get invested. And, you know, certain players that are doing well, Sitsipas, who we're going to talk about in a second, he is somebody that I kind of want to see what the level's like in the first match because he's gone one and done a bunch too. Uh, in this case, it's kind of gone the opposite. He, he handled his first match relatively solidly. But the last two, he showed tremendous fight, Jason. Two, seven, five, third set wins. And uh, in this case of the match today against Hatchinoff, somebody who uh, they've had some matches that's about getting the better of them, but down a break in the third, two-hour, 45-minute match, the door, the exit was staring right at him, but Sitsipas <laughs> dug in and got no, the job done. Fantastic effort. You know, and as you suggested at the beginning, 
of our little chat here, I was across his win over Nadal at the uh, Australian Open, which was absolutely fabulous, you know, to come back from two sets to love down against somebody of that caliber shows you what a great competitor he is. And he's had to use all of those attributes this week in Rotterdam, you know, really struggled against uh, Hubi Horkacz, 7-5 uh, and a third, and then similar scoreline against Hashinov. Uh, I think the added advantage for him this week is he's playing doubles with his brother isn't he and he said the other he day <laughs> yeah he said the other day that you know that gives him as much joy as beating the likes of Nadal at a major you know which is incredible really to hear that so I think you know he wants to be there for as long as he possibly can this week and that gave him the incentive to stick in there uh, not easy for someone who likes perhaps a, a slightly quicker court in Tsitsipas, but he's one of those guys that can play on a lot of different surfaces did well at the French Open last year when the conditions were deathly slow again so I've just really enjoyed watching him compete. You know, again, that's the difference between a great shot maker. Someone like Sabalenka might have lost in a similar scenario this week, whereas Tsitsipas has been able to find a way to win. And he's such a well-rounded player that he does have options tactically. You know, if today on a slower court, I need to play a little more from the back, then in a quicker court, I can come in a little more frequently. You know, how do I use my serve on any given day? He's got all of those options. And I just love the way that he's fought so bravely this week. And he gets Rublev coming up next. Mm -hmm. Rublev, who... <laughs> If you didn't see this today's match, taking on Chardy, one of the better competitors, gets the most out of his level. Rubov had match point, had match points in the second set, lost it, lost on a tie break, had a four love lead in the third, had to hang on to win six four in that match. And I was more, I guess, impressed. It's weird to say that, but he didn't completely tank. He stuck in in that last game. It was getting close. I love the attitude. I love the fiery competitiveness. But when we're talking Rublev, it's been a tremendous year. But now he's at the stage, probably the hardest in tennis. He's got to prove he can beat the top guys. He's been denied by Medvedev, Tsitsipas at majors. This isn't the major test, but it's a good chance for him. I always loved a quote from Roger Federer that he, he made a few years ago when Vavrinka broke into the top 10 for the first time in his career. And, and Roger said, well, that's the easy bit. You know, now you've got the tough bet, you know, to start beating the very best players mm -hmm. in the world, you know, and that's uh, that's easy for someone like Fed to say who's <laughs> done that throughout the course of his <laughs> yeah, career. Yeah. I'd be very happy to have just broken into the world's top 10. But that is the challenge for Rublev now. And you're right. He's, he's made such strides in the last year or so. He, his second serve was weak initially. He had some serious injury problems a couple of years ago. Yeah. So it's nice that he's now fully fit. You know, he has always had a big forehand, but what about the rest of his game? Could you break down the backhand? You know, how is his movement? Has he improved in those aspects as well? Uh, yet still, when he comes up against someone like Medvedev in, in Australia and he needs other options, he's found wanting. So I think that's a way in which he can develop his game. If you can't go through an opponent, he's similar to Sabalenka. He doesn't, at the moment, have the necessary nous to be able to find a way around them. And he gets frustrated with that. So a lot of the players ranked outside the top 10 can be beaten with pace alone when you're as good as Rublev. But now when you come up against Medvedev, against Djokovic, you know, against Nadal, you have to do something a little more differently and you have to be a little better and a little smarter. So I think that's where he can perhaps make the greatest improvement in the next 12 months, becoming a better competitor, understanding what he needs to add to his game. Can he come in a little more frequently? And if so, I think that will give him the best chance of then beating the highest ranked players more frequently. However, he is a phenomenal competitor. And, you know, if you're going to get embroiled in a three-set match with him or a best-of-five-set match, you know, he is going to battle for every single point. And he, too, is a great watch. That forehand is one of the best. 
Uh, I, I'm excited to see that. The other side of the straw was wide open. I mean, we're going to have a finalist of either Vucevic, Chorich. By the time you listen to this, we'll, we'll know what the semis are. But Nisha Corey's in there, Tommy Paul. I mean, one of those guys has a chance of, I don't want to say a lifetime, maybe in the case of Tommy Paul or Fusevic to break into a final. Nishikori and, and Chorich have had success, but this is a golden opportunity early in the year to, to make a 500 final and set yourself up for a great, great 2021. That's what you've always got to think, you know, when you see the likes of Medvedev and uh, Oje Aliasim, who got injured in his first match. He was another seed in the top half of the door. Bautista Gut, he lost to Davidovich for Kina. Uh, Zverev, of course, was beaten as well. So then suddenly, if you're anyone else in the draw, you suddenly sit up and take notice and you think, okay, I need to bring my best this week because this is a chance that doesn't come around too often. It's a big tournament. You look at the uh, role of honor, past champions at this event, you know, it's the best of the best. So suddenly they're in the mix. You know, you can see them in Championship Sunday and uh, a chance to win a 500 doesn't come along too often. So yeah, I think for Nishikori, it's nice to see him back in action. He's had all sorts of injury problems. He's had to drop down, play challenges. So again, that, that win over Oje Aliasim in the first round and then the three-set win over Diminor was great, competed very, very well. So he's looking like he's on the right track now. Chorich is somebody who started the year disappointingly. You know, he would have had high hopes to have done a little better down under. That didn't happen. He's somebody that we've always talked about in the last four or five years as, as you know, potential top 10, top five player. That hasn't happened as yet. And uh, so this is a good opportunity for him. And of course, and Tommy Paul got one of the Americans that really at the beginning of last year started doing really well, qualified and made the semis in Adelaide. And that's when I started to sit up and take notice and, and think that, okay, he's making the move now from challengers to tour level tennis. And this is a great opportunity for him as well. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see who takes uh, takes the opportunity. So many storylines. If any one of mm. these guys gets there, it's just the chance to really tell another story, as you said. Jason Goodall, this has been a blast. Uh, before I let you go, a uh, couple things. Go one on. being, the other two tournaments we didn't talk about, if you have any player that you think could make a run, could be interesting. I know Schwartzman is just money when he plays at home. Uh, on the women's Leon event, I just want to throw out the name. Tossen, the, the yes. Swiss girl, is 18 years old. Denmark, he, I think. Denmark. Sorry, yes. you got me right there. Denmark, she won a match against Jen Brady at the French Open. Yep. She is only 18. She's been cruising her way to the semis. This could be a first potential tournament title first. She's already in the semis. Yeah, I think I first saw a couple of years ago in Australia. I think she won the junior title there. And uh, speaking to a couple of coaches that I know in Europe, you know, they said, keep an eye on her. She's got a good game, big game, going to be a good player. Uh, and, you know, been keeping my eye on her for maybe the last 18 months. And then suddenly this week, it's that golden opportunity. You beat the top seed in the first round. And then all of a sudden, I think it was Alexandrova, wasn't it? And then all of a sudden, the draw opens up. And then it's, can you back that up? Sometimes you have that big win, and then suddenly there's a little bit of a letdown in the next round. That's what impressed me there. Suddenly, she's able to win pretty comfortably, and it's no big deal. And I think that's when you start to think, okay, maybe she's got a champion's mindset. Those big wins it's not that big a deal. She expects that of herself. And then suddenly you can go go on, win a tournament. Before you know it, your ranking gets up there, you're part of the tour. So this could be a, a life-changing week for her in terms of speeding up her ascent to the top of the game. But I really like the way she plays. And then obviously in Diego Schwartzman in Argentina, strange that he's never won a tournament there, given all the success that he's had on home soil. So he'll be looking to do that this week. He's the heavy Heavy favorite. That draw is a little weaker. And you've had a lot of players coming through the qualifying, doing well there. And uh, 
the week prior, we had our first uh, winner on the ATP Tour this year who was making his debut in the main draw in Cordoba. And uh, he played again this week, a couple of the uh, brothers there. Uh, they're doing really well. And and I think there's chances, you know. But in Schwartzman, you've got somebody who is world-class, and it would be a major, major surprise if he wasn't able to win the tournament. And he's somebody who struggled in Australia, lost to Karatsev, got blown away in that match. And, and The loss looks a little better now. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, at the time, it was like, who's this yeah. dude? And then now we all know now. But he's somebody who, of course, had such a strong season last year. Not easy sometimes to back that up with the added weight of expectation. So if he can get a win this week, that'll kickstart his season. I can't wait to see. Uh, last thing with Jason Goodall on the TC Live podcast. We're prepping for next week. Roger Federer's return. Mm, can't wait. 39 years old. Hasn't played in over a year. Shh. Fitness guys. You've, you've outlasted him so far, <laughs> but it's close. Federer's, you know, we'll see. But uh, what should we expect from Fed playing right into the thick of it? Dubai, great field. Have no idea. And I don't think Roger will have any idea either. That's the key. That's why we're all so anxious to see how he's able to fare in his first match. You can practice all you like. You know, you, you're not forced to push your body to the extent you are in matches. And, you know, once the adrenaline starts to flow, what will happen? It was unexpected that he was off this long. You know, I had to have a couple of surgeries. That wasn't planned. So obviously the rehab didn't go according to plan. That's always worrying, especially with knees. You know, you never know. So I think he'll be very anxious. I think no one will really know what to expect. The keys are that he comes through his first match physically feeling great. You know, no problems with the knee whatsoever. Then we can assess the quality of the tennis. But the most important thing yeah. is to be able to play. Then I think he'll see, you know, he's been based in the Middle East uh, in the off-season, so he, he's very used to the conditions there. So that's good news. And I'll try and get a couple of matches over the course of the next couple of weeks. But you know, the one mistake that I've made in the past when Nadal was uh, struggling for a couple of years there before he, he then, you know, pushed back to the very top of the game is that with the truly great players, they do have an ability that most mortals don't. <laughs> that it doesn't matter what the situation is, just as we saw in 2017 with Roger, you know, when he was off for six months, comes back, wins the Aussie. It's, it's impossible to predict, and it would be a mistake to suggest that they can't do certain things. So it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if Federer come the grass court season in the middle of summer is one of the guys that you're picking to maybe win the title, you know, and I think that's probably will be the goal. Can he play enough tennis in this part of the season to build up confidence in his knee, he'll be looking to peak on the grass. That gives him the best chance, surely, of adding to his Grand Slam tally. So I think he'll be very much looking, you know, to how well he's going to be able to play in two or three months' time. But, of course, all eyes will be on that match next week. Everybody has rust, even Roger Federer, but we know <laughs> that he'll be in great shape. It's and a golden rust. It's a golden rust. Concerned. And if it's a close match, if it's a pressure moment... We know. We know what this guy's all about. So he'll be able to handle that. I'm excited, as I know you are, Jason Goodall. Thanks for joining the TC Live podcast. Absolute pleasure. First time guest. Hopefully, I'm, I'm going to guarantee it won't be the last. This is my first ever podcast. It's oh, cool. wow. We're really breaking the ice here. Pretty but cool. In all seriousness, thanks for being a part of TC. Uh, working your first week. Best of luck today. Calling some big matches. You're going to want to check that out as well. Uh, thanks for joining the show. Pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this week's TC Live podcast. For Jason Goodall, I'm Mitch Michaels. Uh, there will be more episodes to follow every week. Check out the Tennis Podcast Network at tennis.com slash podcast. We're going into March full swing, Dubai, Miami, lots of events. Then we'll be on the clay before you know it. Should be fun. I'm Mitch Michaels. This was the TC Live podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.